Hey guys, you're still here. I thought, I wondered when we were going to kick this series off um, by week three, will there still be a Bridgeway Church? (laughs) So I'm so glad that you guys are here and we are delving into the treacherous waters of talking about two things. It's never polite to talk about religion and politics. We're doing it together. Um, Hopefully in a way that surprises you, hopefully in a way that Uh, helps us uh, look more like Jesus, not like our preferred cable news networks or anything like that as well. Uh, But just because there is a pensive spirit in the air whenever these conversations collide, um, I just want to take us back to our ground rules that we're going over every single week. And I'm hoping that, you know, you hold me accountable too. We'll all do this together. The ground rules for Decisions 2024, this teaching series. Number one is this, that Bridgeway is and will always be a politically diverse church. Sometimes I have people ask me, is this a Democrat church or Republican church? And I'm like, it's a very purple church, you know? Uh, We are a mixed, a diverse group of people, Republican and Democrat. And as long as I have the privilege of serving as lead pastor here, it's gonna stay that way. I don't know if you knew this, and I hope that nobody starts running towards the door, but down your aisles this morning, you are sitting next to people that voted against the person you voted for the last time around, and probably will again this year as well. Look, the door's Nobody, nobody's running towards the doors in that way. That's a really, really good thing. But this is a politically diverse church, and this series is not an attempt to try to get you to vote any specific way. That is not uh, my role, nor should it be a role of any minister to do so, um, because we believe this to be true. Next ground rule here that we believe there's no official Christian political party. Uh, And I know they both claim to be the party. They're both like, well, vote for Jesus. We count those on our side is what they would basically say. Uh, But we don't believe that's true. Uh, We we think that uh, Jesus did not come to take sides. He came to take over and he is doing a different thing, uh, a different thing from an elephant or a donkey. He is the lamb and he challenges both sides. And there are parts uh, of both sides platforms that line up with him and some that he would be flipping tables about on both sides. And so we do not uh, think that there is a Christian political party. So you are safe here no matter what. And then lastly, because we love our tax exempt status as a church and nonprofit religious institution, Bridgeway will not be endorsing a presidential candidate in 2024. So uh, again, my goal is not to tell you who to vote for, how to vote. Uh, the, the heart behind this series is the reality that in 2020, after it was all said and done, um, Many of us look back in the way that people behaved, how we behaved, and it was embarrassing. And to me, the most shocking and heart-wrenching and embarrassing thing about the aftermath of the 2020 presidential election cycle was the way that Christ followers, Christians, church people got muddied up in the ways of partisan politics and took sides. And there was even led to violence um, inside of this. And um, I am convinced that there is a way, hear me, you guys, there is a way that the second Sunday in November of this year, we can look back on the way that we engaged with this year and this political process, and we can be proud. There's a way that we don't have to look back with shame, embarrassment of the things we said, the things that happened, the way that we got our emotions tied up in it, where we can be proud to where we're like, yeah, we look more like Jesus now, and we don't look like what our cable news are telling us to look, and it's not, we're still here, you know, that reality, whatever happens. And so that's why we're calling this series Decisions 2024. I mean, MSNBC, CNN, all these places have the decision 2024. It's the most important thing. I believe that um, how we engage this next year and the way that we um, have the opportunity to follow Jesus, uh, it's actually a bigger decision. There are bigger decisions that we can make than who we actually punch 
a ballot for. And that's why we're in this series. So to do a little bit of a recap, every single week we're uh, centering around one decision that I am trying to take and make myself and I'm inviting us to do together. Uh, Very first week of the series, um, we had this decision. Decision number one, I will not be a jerk to others about the 2024 election. We said that uh, God doesn't need any more jerks for Jesus. Nobody needs that. And so when we come across people that see the world politically and the ordering of power differently than we do, that we're going to see the human being behind their political view. And we're going to honor them because they're divine image bearers. And we're going to treat each other with respect and seek to understand, not just seek to argue and win. So we will not be a jerk to others about the 2024 election. Last week, we had this challenge. If you joined us online, decision number two is that I will give my highest allegiance to the kingdom of God, not a political party or candidate. (laughs) Again, making that decision that we are first a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and Jesus is the one calling the shots, not uh, the leader or the, the nominee from the Republican party or the Democratic party. And so the way that we trust Jesus as our highest allegiance should affect the way that we engage the process. We think that is to be true. So these first two weeks, the decisions that we uh, challenge you to make, they're really pointed towards those among us who love this political season, those who get real wrapped up in the conflict and the battle and the fight, the drama of politics. And we're trying to push against that to be like, hey, slow your roll a little bit. Let's remember first things first and how we engage this year. Um, But I realize that's not everybody. Uh, There are some of you, uh, many of us probably in the room this morning, that we hate presidential election years, and we're just like hoping that the whole thing is over. If we could just snap our fingers, the whole thing would be over. And many of us, uh, we we feel like those first two weeks, we're glad that somebody heard it, and we're like nudging our neighbor, but that's not us, right? Anybody ever been caught nudging your neighbor thinking, I'm glad you're here, but you're not thinking it's for you? Uh, Because there is a desire that many of us have based on our personality and our history, a desire just to bury our heads in the sand when it comes to this political season, that we have a bit of a cynicism towards the whole thing. Like some of you, and I know this is describing you, some of you are looking at the way things are shaping up and you're like, is this really the best we can do? Are we really going to do this whole thing again? And you feel a cynicism towards that. And some of you might be like, you know, all candidates and all parties are all the same. They all lie and they get elected. They promise to do things. They don't actually do those things. Then they get out of politics and they get rich. Anybody know what I'm talking about here? Like you feel like, you just feel like the cynicism bubbling up to the top. And then you might think the whole political government system, it's all corrupt. It's all house of, uh, house of cards in that way. It's never like the West Wing. It's like house of cards. Uh, you, can, you can't trust anybody, anything. I don't care. I just want it to be over with. Some of us feel that way when it comes to this political system. And, and others of us, just the conflict of this year makes us want to like just make it all stop. Because some of us in our personalities and that fight or flight thing, we are flight. And when the political conversation gets up, we just shrink down or we want to get out of the conversation as soon as possible. I mean, some of you were thinking when you, when the little video played before I got up here, like, oh, another week of this. And it's okay for you to admit that. And you're like, how many more weeks? I'll I'll tell you, it's going to be 17. I'm just kidding. Uh, (laughs) Next week is the last week. It's not the final week this week. But you want it to be done. Some of you, in the words of Rodney King, just like, can't we all just get along? Do we have to, like, have this fight? I just don't want to deal with it. 
And as much as all those emotions are valid, and I know I'm speaking to a large amount of our group today, um, I, I think at the same time, if we, if we follow that impulse just to pull away, to bury our head in the sand, to not think about this, and not to properly try to bring ourselves in, in a Christ-like way to this conversation, we don't really get the job done as well. You know, politics, we talked about this in week one. The idea of what politics is, is it's how a society orders power and distributes power. And the way that our society orders and distributes power, it affects real people. It affects you and your family. And as I hope to argue today, it affects our neighbors that we are called to love. And so we can't just bury our head in the sand. We need to follow our convictions and find ways that we can engage in the process, but not lose our soul in the process to actually follow Jesus as we walk through this year. And so today, decision number three is going to talk how we can not just bury our head in the sands when it comes to these conversations, but actually follow Jesus through these conversations. Here's the decision that we're going to make today, that I will seek to promote the common good for the sake of my neighbors, not my self-interest. We're going to break this down today, but it's this decision that we will seek to promote the common good for the sake of my neighbors, not my self-interest. Now that phrase, the common good, is a beautiful actual Christian teaching that was developed in the 1200s by a Catholic teacher and thinker by the name of Thomas Aquinas. And the, con- the doctrine of the common good that our Catholic brothers and sisters developed and were so grateful for, it was this idea that Christ followers should promote things in the world, in the ordering of our society, that promote peace, safety, order instead of chaos, and check this out, flourishing for all of our neighbors. The common good is something that promotes peace, safety, order, and flourishing for all, even people that don't think and look like us. And I want to challenge us today to have a vision for the way that we walk through this year, to be promoting the common good and not leaning into our self-interest driving the conversation. Isn't there something just deeply American about uh, being led by our self-interest? Isn't there just, and I love America, there's no other country on planet Earth that I would want to live and be a part of, but there's just something American about us fighting for ourselves, especially the way that we engage during political seasons. So much of it is led by our self-interest. I mean, questions that we tend to ask about the candidates that we're voting for, the people that we support, sound like this. How does this affect my bank account? What are the gas prices under this person? What's it going to mean for me? I mean, what is my French toast budget going to look like with milk, butter, and bread prices? It's up 30%, by the way, today. How is this going to affect my taxes, what I pay and what I'm going to get back? How does this affect my home value? Is it going to go up or is it going to go down? How does this affect my safety? Or we often think my kids' safety. You know, there's people we're legally obligated to take care of and we love, but you know, it's still mine, my family. How does this affect my financial life and professional goals? Now, those questions are not evil or even inherently sinful for us to ask, but there is one common denominator in all these questions we ask about when we think about engaging the political process. And I don't think they lead us where we ultimately desire to go. And the common denominator in all those questions are me, myself, I, 
and mine. Everything points back to us in our self-interest. And I realize that in myself. But I am provoked, I am challenged, I am unsettled by a different vision that Jesus of Nazareth gives us. And again, we're calling this series Decisions 2024, not just Decision, because we believe that there are some decisions about the way that we engage this process that are more important than who you just pull a lever for, who you punch a ballot for. But how we engage in the political process, just like how we engage in our work, in our relationship, in sports, and all those different things, they shape us, they transform us. And if we are led with only our self-interest in mind, if we're being led by what this means for me, I think it deludes us, it lessens us, it makes us less than what you and I long to be and what we were created for. So what I wanna do for the next few minutes, I wanna take us to some unsettling teachings from Jesus. Things, and I say that because it unsettles me. And I want us to get a clear grasp of this vision that Jesus has for the way that we walk in the world, how followers of Jesus walk in the world. And that changes how we grasp power, how we run after ourselves or loving others. I mean, it changes a lot. And then we're gonna ask, what does all that mean for the way that we engage politically or disengage politically? So the Gospel of Matthew, written by one of Jesus' uh, disciples, one of his friends, who was a former tax collector, got called into this family of God. And um, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, G- uh, Jesus is mo- on the move. He's got his, his disciples. They're healing people. They're teaching about this new thing that God is doing. They're inviting the unlikely people into the fold. And things tend uh, to be like up and to the right through most of the Gospel of Matthew. But chapter 16, there's a tone shift because it seems like, man, God's making this thing happen. Look at all that's happening through Jesus. And then Jesus is like, slow your roll, guys. This is not all up and to the right. This is not victory without going through what the world calls defeat. He says, the name of the game is not up and to the right, self-interest. We're all going to be kings. It's something different. So we're going to pick up in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus starts to explain this tone shift. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now there's a resurrection, but he's first going to have to go through suffering, betrayal, death. This is not a journey up and to the right (laughs) This is not just the self-improvement plan. There's going to be darkness a part of this story. And Jesus spells this out, um, but uh, one of his disciples, one of my favorite disciples, a guy by the name of Peter, who I just have affinity with because he's open mouth, insert foot all the time. Peter steps in and he goes, no, Jesus, no, that's not, that can't be right. This is what happens next. Peter took him aside. I love the picture of Peter taking Jesus aside for a little talking to, right? He took him aside and began to rebuke him, to correct him, to say, no, Lord, there's no way. That's not what you're up to. That's not what the kingdom looks like. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned to him and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Sidebar, how would you like Jesus to call you Satan? 
Now, this is not Jesus saying you're like the red guy with the red horns and the pitchfork thing, but the word Satan in this original language means the deceiver. It means the opposer, the accuser, who's trying to get Jesus to have a warped view of things. And and Jesus recognizes this temptation, even from Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Jesus, even as he's getting into this, is like, Peter, you're thinking about power, you're thinking about the kingdom, you're thinking about the win, and I need to flip that up upside down. (laughs) That's not what we're talking about here. And so what Jesus does next is he, he breaks into a teaching to try to bring clarity to his disciples. And hear me, guys, his disciples are not dumb, ridiculous people. I think he's trying to bring clarity to us today as well about what it actually means to follow Jesus and his vision for us walking in the world. Jesus does this next. Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever wants to follow me, to be part of my family, to partner with me in the world, must deny themselves. Check this out for a countercultural message. Must say no to themselves must not fulfill every wish list when they want it, must not answer and fulfill every appetite, satisfy every appetite we must have. It's not about gaining, but it's actually about denying ourselves. And then he says, to take up and take up their cross and follow me. Now, we have images on the other side about what it means to take up your cross because Jesus overcame the cross and he died, but he rose again. But the first time that these guys heard this, they had no image of that. They walked around in the ancient world and they saw people take up a cross on their back. And what did it mean? It didn't mean victory. It meant the total loss. This was a person who took up their cross, a crook or an enemy of the state who had to bend their knee and their will and lost all their freedom to the ultimate superpower of the world, the Roman Empire. It says that they're not of themselves. They gave up all their freedom and they lost. And Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, say no to yourself. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and then follow me into the world. Shadow step me. Imitate me. Get covered in my dust following so close behind me. And then Jesus, he's trying to bring clarity, but in the Jesus way, he says some really confusing things we have to sit with and wrestle with. He says this next. For whoever wants to save their life, which I don't know about you, but I'm thinking about myself. Yeah, I'd like to save my life. Yeah, whoever, like I'd like to preserve my life. I'd like to get control of my life. I'd love to be in control and be the master of my own destiny. Yeah, that sounds good until it gets to the end of the sentence. We'll lose it. Save their life. Yes, I'm in, but lose, like what does that mean? We typically think of losing your life as dying, but that's not the word in what it really means. We think about losing something like I lost my keys. Where are my keys? But the lose in this, uh, this teaching, the word actually is more than that. It's like actually a decision to let go of. It's to not physically die, but it's to like destroy or ruin or forfeit to like not even take the win or the loss, but to forfeit in this way. And, and, you know, when we think about it, like this idea, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. We actually believe this, and we've seen this in our lives or in people that we love, their lives, right? When people try to white knuckle all of their outcomes, when they try to gain and their whole life is looking at themselves in the mirror, you go, you're amazing, you can do it, go get it, right? That whole reality, when you try to white knuckle your life and control it and preserve it, something upside down happens, but it seems to slip through your fingertips more and more 
and more. And Jesus is saying, this is just the way that it is. Whoever wants to hold on their life, preserve their life, make their life their thing, they will lose it. But he finishes the thought here and he says this, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Again, lose, not misplace, lose, not die, but lose being this conscious decision. Lose your life to to give of themselves, choose to make their power, to steward their power for the advancement of other people, not just themselves. Jesus is saying that people that follow me, like when they don't put themselves in the driver's seat for them to win, that is where life really takes off. That is what life is all about. But this is a confusing thing. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. And it's hard for us to grab because it's, it's a paradox. It's this strange thing like a paradox. You guys know what a paradox is? It's not a single dox. It's a couple pair. Just kidding. There's my one dad joke of the morning. But I find this definition of a paradox to be helpful. But this is what Jesus is doing. A paradox is a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. This is what a paradox is. I think of a paradox as a, it's a constant conversation in our house um, where my wife will say something like, you know, we, we're going to save money by spending money now. And I'm like, I don't know. We just save money by saving money. You're like the whole idea, right? But it's like that idea. If you do something about it now, it's going to save money in the long time. That's a paradox. But I don't know if any of you guys are fans of 80s music. Any 80s music fans? You know the song, uh, the Rick Roll song from Rick Astley, I'm never gonna give you up, never gonna let you down. That's all I'm gonna sing of it. Um, anyway, this is a paradox in the style of Rick Astley right here. If you ask Rick Astley for a copy of the movie Up, he won't give it to you because he's never gonna give you up. <laughs> However, by doing so, he just lets you down, basically betraying his song. Some of you guys are gonna be thinking about this for like the rest of the week, the rest of my message. I should have waited till the end because you're not gonna hear another thing I say. Take it off the screen, please. We gotta move on, we gotta move on here. But that's a paradox, and I'm saying all that because this is what Jesus is doing. He's saying something that sounds contradictory, upside down, but it's actually the fabric of reality, a paradox of Jesus' kingdom in his way. According to Jesus, this is what's true, you guys. According to Jesus, filling is achieved by emptying. Gaining is achieved by giving away, not white-knuckling. Winning is achieved by losing. Following Jesus is not marked by winning and self-improvement. It's just not the game that Jesus is playing. And he ends this teaching with these upside-down paradoxical statements by coming back and saying something so challenging, but I think so true. He says this with a question. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet lose their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Is it possible that we can live in a way that we're trying to gain and win and grab power and influence and get our lives saved so much that we lose ourselves? Like lose your soul? I mean, we're not talking Harry Potter Dementors thing here, but like to lose yourself, your individuality, who God created you to be. Jesus is warning us. We live a lives where ourselves are the end game, we lose, even though it looks like and feels like at the time we're trying to win. This is what Jesus is saying in another way. Those who devote themselves to themselves eventually lose themselves. Those who become consumed with themselves eventually consume themselves. 
You ever heard the phrase, oh, and they're so full of themselves? I think this is what Jesus is talking about. It actually leads to a dead end. Being consumed with yourself and what you want for you, it ends up eating you alive, consuming you. And Jesus says, you can do that, but you can't do that and follow me at the same time. I'm playing a different game. We're playing a whole different sport. And Jesus says these paradoxical things to show us. This is not the way that you and I are called, invited, or created to live. It's not just about me, myself, mine, and I. Four chapters later, you would think that his disciples would have it really, you know, soak into their souls at this point, but it's not the case. And again, we're not going to beat up the disciples. I think I need this reminder today. We all still do today, even though we might have heard these things before. But we see a, a mother come to Jesus, angling for her two sons, who are disciples, to try to get them in the room where it happens, the room where it happens. That was for like three people. Thank you. Matthew chapter 20. Let's check this out. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, James and John, came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down in humility, asked a favor of him. What is it that you want? Jesus asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. A mom, just doing what we all want to do as parents. We want to set our kids up to succeed. And so she comes into the room and pulls her two boys in saying like, hey, maybe they can be the left and right of you. You know, In Jewish thinking, to be at the right hand of a king meant that you were there for the military might and power. And to be the left hand of a king meant you were there for wisdom to make wise judgments in the world. And she wanted her boys there. And I'm sure the boys wanted to be right there as well. But this causes a rift in the group. Again, we're told this the very next couple of verses here. When the 10 other disciples heard about this, they were indignant. They were honked off. They were angry with the two brothers. How dare they try to angle for power? What is this house of cards? Is this a game of thrones? What is happening here? Don't they know we're all a team? I can't believe they did that. And maybe they were thinking, I should have thought about that first, that whole thing going on. But it causes a rift. It causes this dissension within their group. And again, Jesus being the master teacher, being the master coach, if you will, he goes, okay, huddle up. I got to give you guys another teaching. It hasn't quite got all the way in through your head yet. Come on, guys. I got to teach you this. And then what Jesus does next, you guys, I've just been floored by this passage this morning sitting in it. Because what I think he does next is he gives us a challenge. He gives us a vision for a way that Christ followers can walk in this world that we need in our public witness. It's something that can change the narrative about what people think about Christ followers. It's something that could uh, build back trust that had been lost through these culture wars that we've experienced over the last 30 years. But what Jesus does next, we should lean into, we should be provoked and invited into what Jesus is saying next. Here's Jesus teaching when there's this power struggle. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Jesus is saying, look around you guys. You see the way that power is run. You see the power structures. You see that everybody else, they like get people over them and then they make their underlings do what they want and they make them sit back for four years and try to undo all they did the four years before. They try to exercise authority. They try to win power and then use power to kick butts and take names. That's the way of the world, this dog-eat-dog power structure. He says, you guys see the way it is. And I think he's Again, maybe speaking a little bit to the way our power is ordered in our world as well. By that, I mean a lot. 
And then the next couple words that Jesus says is the challenge, the invitation, the vision that I'm so captivated by. He says, this is the way that you see it. Not so with you. You guys are called to a different kingdom, a different rule, a different reign, a different administration, if you will. We're not going to play the power game. That's not what you're called to be a part of. You're not going to give your life for the power game and the lord it over them game. You're going to give your life to a different thing. He says, not so with you. And then he goes into some more paradoxical thoughts that make us scratch our heads, but lean us into the story even more so. He says this next. Instead, instead of doing the power game, lording it over each other, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. He's saying, I'm doing things upside down. If you want to be great, it's not about rising to the top. It's a race to the back of the line. It's a go as low as you can possibly go. That's what greatness actually looks like when you serve other people. Whoever wants to be first, it's not about racing to the front, kicking people and cheating to get there and then lording it over them once you get there. It's actually finding yourself in a position of service to that person in a relationship of service to that person. This is what it actually looks like. And then Jesus caps off this teaching with, I'm not just telling you guys to do something, hoping that you'll figure it out. I want you to follow me. Look at my example. This is what I'm going to do. He says this next. He says this next. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served. Son of Man being the phrase that he uses for himself, Jesus, more than anything else. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I'm not telling you guys to just figure it out. I'm telling you, follow me the way that I made my life, not about me being the star of the show, but by serving others. This vision of gaining your life by giving it away, this vision of not so with us, we're going to race to the back of the line, we're going to rise by descending, this vision didn't just end with Jesus. About 30 years after Jesus' life, death, his resurrection, and then his ascension to the right hand of God the Father, um, there's this guy named Paul who had his life radically turned upside down by the person of Jesus. And he starts teaching about this same ethic, this same vision for how we live and walk in the world. And he's, he's actually writing from a prison cell to these people in a Roman imperial colony called Philippi. And he says this, and this should echo how Jesus taught as well. Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. He says, you guys, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Do nothing. Act in no way towards it's all about you and your self-interest. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Humility is such a, a beautiful thing because it's such a positive attribute and characteristic in our society, right? Oh, they're just so humble. They're, I love their humility. We love that. But in the ancient world, it was the Greek word humilitas. It was not a positive attribute. It was a sign of weakness and disgrace to have any humility. It was all about your power and lording it over other people. But because of the way that Jesus and his message has reshaped and restructured our world, now we think of humility as a positive thing putting others, first valuing others in front of yourself. He says, not looking to your own interests, your self-interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Consistently, you guys, a Christian ethic of how we walk in the world is not the end game being me, myself, I, mine, what I want. A Christian ethic is 
others first. We follow Jesus by putting others first because this is what was modeled for us. This is what was taught to us. And this is how we have a Christ-like witness in the world. So all that being said for this vision that Jesus in the New Testament has given us, how, how then does that shape us in how we walk politically and how we engage in a political season? I think it should or it could lead us to the decision we're making today, decision number three, that I will seek to promote the common good for the sake of my neighbors, not my self-interest. What does it look like for us not just to vote in this way, but to engage in our society and to get, engage with our neighbors in this way to promote the common good for the sake of our neighbors, not our self-interest? And I think when I try to bring like a template or I try to bring some steps forward, some practical values for us to hold in this, I'm taken to the Old Testament prophet of Micah. Um, Micah was uh, someone who spoke on God's behalf to God's people, the Israelites, when Israel had been in a very politically uh, you know, turbulent season. They had been taken over by the Assyrians. They had been kicked out into exile from their home and the way they were called to worship. And Micah, I love this about a prophet. We talk about this sometimes, that prophets are not people that just predict the future. They're people that give a timeless truth to a timely situation. And this is what he does. Micah, he speaks to them and how they're supposed to walk and live in this politically turbulent time. And Micah chapter six, verse eight. He says this to God's people, and I think he says it to us as well. He has shown you, O mortal, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. What would it look like for the Christian witness in the world through this year that we're all going to have to live through? What if we were drawn back to these attributes? and the way that we lived for other people in a way to honor God. And there's a couple things in this I want us to point out. I think there's a nice template here. We'll put it this first. First, we need to be people that are justice-oriented. Justice-oriented, because, you know, Micah says we're called to act justly. You know, it's an interesting thing about justice, and we've talked about this before as well, but when we hear about justice, you know, we think about law and order. We think about John Wayne and John Wick and other Johns who are getting retribution on other people, right? We think about that's what justice is. But it's an interesting thing that in the Bible, the word justice typically doesn't mean that. Over 400 times the word that's translated to justice is not retributive, revenge kind of justice. It's actually the Hebrew word mishpat, which means restorative justice, restoring the relationship, bent towards the vulnerable, the oppressed, to lift them up and to even the scales. Mishpat. Just because it's fun to say, and I want you guys to remember it, can we say mishpat on the count of three together? One, two, three, mishpat. It's restorative justice. It's hearing the cries of someone who has been trodden on or beat down and evening the scales to lift them up. I love what author and pastor Eugene Cho, how he defines justice in his book. Uh, he says this, that justice is a firm conviction expressed in action that doing right is better than doing well for myself. It's a firm conviction expressed in action that doing right is better than doing well for myself. Micah says this is what we're called to be, to be justice-oriented, to be thinking about doing right for those people among us. What does it look like for us to have a justice-oriented focus this political season? Be thinking about what's right, who's been downtrodden, who 
needs to be lifted up and how can I use whatever influence and power I have to bring Mishpat, to partner with God as he desires for Mishpat. Next, we see in Micah 6 he says to act justly and to love mercy. Love is this idea of not just like warm emotions, but it's a commitment to the best of other people. What does it mean to be committed to mercy for all people? What is it? I, I think to be committed to mercy for all people means that we've got to have active involvement in pursuing the common good for our community rather than withdrawing and putting our head in the sand, because that intentionally or initially, it just leads us to think back on ourselves. But being committed to mercy for all means we've got to be looking out on others. You know, in the New Testament, the word mercy is often translated to compassion. And the interesting word about the Greek word for compassion is that it's actually a biological term. There's one account in the New Testament where Jesus, uh, he comes across a, a crowd of people that are suffering, that are in pain. And the scriptures tell us that he was moved with compassion, which meant biologically he was moved on his inside, his stomach turned, his stomach hurt because of what he saw and the empathy that he experienced as he was looking at people that were suffering. What does it look like for us to be moved with compassion, to have mercy for those who might be looking differently than we um, look, who have different life experiences than we have, but we want to be committed to mercy for all, to love mercy in our community? what would that look like for us to be marked by that in the way that we engage in this season? And then lastly, Micah 6 eight says, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I think this calls Christ followers to be a humble presence during an election season. And I think this humble presence, it calls us to overcome the domineering passions of a culture war that our country's been stuck in for the last 30 years or so, where there was us versus them, the righteous versus the unrighteous, the godly versus the ungodly, and of course, God is on our side. Hear me, you guys. Um, I think that the church, capital C Church, and I'm sure I've been a part of this as well, we can be accused of walking more with a strut than a limp in the way that we walk into these rooms. And we can take this warring posture with our fists up instead of getting our hands dirty to serve those around us. And I don't think it leads us to the place that God calls us to be. What does it look like to seek to be of real use to others rather than just seeking to be in charge of others? Let me say that one more time. What does it look like for us to seek of being of real use to others rather than seeking to be in charge of others? That seems to be the trail that Jesus is leading us on. What would it look like for us to embody a humble presence this year and every year? Because the decision is this, <laughs> that we will seek the common good, not for our self-interest, but for the sake of our neighbors. And in this thing that we started at the very beginning of this series that was kind of a tongue-in-cheek thing, um, sort of having a pledge that we committed to. If we're going to make these decisions together, sounds like we should put our hand over our heart and say it together. Doesn't that just feel right a little bit? And we've done this at the end of every one of these talks, and um, I wrote one again today. And I want to I read it over us, but uh, I, in a moment I want to give you an opportunity to make this decision, to commit to this vision 
as well. And it might not be for you. And if you're not buying it, if you like think I'm way off course and I'm ridiculous or whatever, like don't put these words on your lips. Um, but I want to give us this opportunity to commit to tell a different story in the way that we engage in this season. Not to put our head in the sand, not to be fighting for power at all costs, but to actually be Christ-like in the way that we walk through this season. So why don't you guys stand up? I just want to read this uh, just in one swoop, and then we'll come back and break it down to a few phrases. But here's what I'm asking you to consider and to commit to and a decision to be made. I'll just read it by myself first. This year during the presidential election cycle, I will seek the common good of all, not just my self-interest. I will be guided by compassion and empathy, especially to the most vulnerable among us. I will seek justice for all, not just people who look like me. And by God's grace, I will follow Jesus by putting others first. What a, what a vision, you guys, that Jesus laid out for us. I'm not laying out for us, but Jesus laid out for us and calls us to. So if you want to, let me break this down. I'd love for you. Hey, let's do this. Just like elementary school. Let's do that again. All right. Let me say this, and you can repeat after me. This year, during the presidential election cycle, I will seek the common good of all, not just my self-interest. I will be guided by compassion and empathy, especially to the most vulnerable among us. I will seek justice for all. Not just people who look like me. And by God's grace, I will follow Jesus by putting others first.